Mark chapter 12, 13 to 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and they said this, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of them, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since seven were married to her. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you don't know the scripture or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. I'm reading from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you both so much for reading those passages. We're going to be um, looking together at Mark chapter 12, so please do have that um, open in front of you. 
Um, and before we look at it together, uh, let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray, please show us Christ. Help us to see Jesus in this passage, to, to know him better, to understand you and your ways, Lord Jesus, uh, to trust in you more and to love you more with all that we are and all that we have. Amen. Well, my only question for us is this. What place does Jesus have in your life? Well, it might seem a rather silly question. After all, we are at, at church this morning. But actually, you might be here today looking in uh, to what Christianity is all about and who Jesus is. And if so, that is a really important question to be asking. If we could just go to that question on the screen. Thank you, Manoush. But you might be here today as a regular Uh, You consider yourself a a believer in God, but you wouldn't say Jesus has a particularly important place in your life. Does that matter? Well, there may be some of us here um, who know quite a lot more about Jesus and and even find him quite an attractive person. He has a place in our lives as a a moral guide, um, a, a spiritual figure, someone we can come to when we feel we need to. He has a special place, but is a special place the right place? Perhaps you're here this morning because Jesus is your all. He is the one your life is built on and the one in whom you know your future is utterly secure. What place does Jesus have in your life? Well, there is a great game we played at the staff social evening uh, last autumn. When it was your go, you had to take five pieces of paper from a hat, um, and each piece of paper had an activity, a person, or a thing on it. And the other players had to guess how you would rank them from favourite to least favourite. We had a lot of fun, a lot of amusement. I mean, who would have thought that Jan Strydem, a man, a tough man brought up in rural South Africa, would love a spreadsheet as much as he does? <laughs> there we are. But here are five things for us. And I'm going to ask you to prioritize them. Manush, we could just have those five things. Freedom from being ruled by an oppressive government. You might see, you might have already seen why I picked that one. And likewise, number two, marriage. Or if you're not married, a precious friend. Number three, your job. Number four, children, grandchildren, or again, a very close relative. Number five, Jesus. How would you prioritize these five things? Now, I'm not going to ask you how you ranked them. I'm not going to ask you to tell everybody openly now. But the question is, where you, where you have placed Jesus? Where you placed Jesus? You see, just before our reading in Mark's Gospel, Jesus tells a parable in which he describes himself as the, as the cornerstone. And the meaning here of, of cornerstone is the most important stone in the building. Um, you don't need me to tell you that a, building, uh, that a stone is something utterly solid. But when Jesus refers himself to a cornerstone as, as the cornerstone, he means the stone upon which everything else in the building depends. And that brings me to our reading, which, in which we heard about two difficult questions which were put to Jesus. One about tax, and the other about marriage and resurrection. 
And the people who pose these questions are like builders on a building site who have taken that cornerstone and have just chucked it in the skip. And that's the image I want you to have in your head here, because the questions these people ask reveal that they've rejected him. They are like builders just chucking that key cornerstone into the skip. He has no place for them in their lives. So that brings us to our first heading, questions which reveal rejection of Jesus. The first lot we're told um, in verse 13 are Pharisees and Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were um, a religious group, and the Herodians were a group of supporters of King Herod. And we've already encountered them in Mark's Gospel back in chapter 3, verse 6. Um, and just after Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath, um, and the, we're told that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So when we're told in verse 13 that they were trying to catch Jesus in his words, well, we know the stakes are, are very high We know that they are out to kill him. And so the words we see in verse 14, well, they're just flannel. Uh, Have a look at verse 14. Uh, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they come in with their question. I mean, what a a schmarmy, icky build-up to a question. They, they, They don't mean any of this at all. And then they ask... Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And they must have felt so pleased with themselves. You know, I wonder how much time they'd spent designing this question carefully to make sure that whatever answer Jesus gave, he would be in trouble. The Romans had imposed a deeply unpopular poll tax on Judea. So unpopular was it that the year it was introduced, a man called Judas of Galilee led a revolt against the Romans. Now, Judas um, called his fellow countrymen who were willing to pay tribute to the Romans, willing to pay this tax to the Romans, he called them cowards. And he had a go at anyone who was happy to live, as he put it, under Roman rule in place of God. Well, Judas' revolt was put down by the Romans, but the tax issue didn't go away and would actually play a role in the events which led to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So feelings about this tax were running high Against this background, how would Jesus answer this question? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he said yes, well, he would alienate those Jewish patriots who would see him as as being pro their pagan Roman masters. But on the other hand, if he said no, well, then he would be reported to the Romans as a rebel and he'd be in trouble with them. And the question was not asked because the Pharisees and the Herodians were genuinely interested in Jesus' answer. Their question revealed their rejection of Jesus. They wanted to put him at odds with either the Jewish people or the Romans, or preferably both. And they wanted to do that because they wanted him dead. They wanted him dead because he was an obstacle in the way of them living their lives just as they pleased without accountability to God. And that was what underlay their nasty trap question. They're the people Jesus referred to in the parable which he had just told just prior to our passage in Mark. In verse 7, we read that they wanted to kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. In other words, they wanted to kill Jesus. They're the ones who, in verse 10, had rejected the stone, again, the stone being a picture of Jesus. They wanted to chuck the cornerstone into the skip because they'd rejected him. 
Well, now, before we come to Jesus' answer, let's look at the other group and their question. This group of people are called the Sadducees. They didn't believe in life after death, which is why they're called Sadducee. No, it's not. It's not. Sorry. 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 I just couldn't. Yeah, I was. That's the F. No, no. I, okay. It was time for a light moment. <laughs> At the time, though, it was more popular to believe in resurrection and life after death. And the Sadducees' question was designed to put Jesus at odds with, with this majority view, to discredit him. And again, I bet a great deal of time had gone into formulating this question. First, they remind Jesus of the law, which you can read in Genesis and Deuteronomy. And the Sadducees spell it out in verse 19. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, but if a man's brother dies and leaves a a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, having reminded Jesus of the law, they then put the scenario to him in verses 20 to 22. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. And then, having set this all up, comes the killer question. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Ha! Get out of that one, Jesus! These questioners are hostile. They've got an agenda. Barristers ask two sorts of questions in court. Everyone's heard of cross-examination. That's a certain type of questioning which involves asking leading questions, questions which are designed to show that your client's case is right and the other side's case is wrong. Those questions always have an agenda. But the other sort of questions barristers ask is virtually unknown outside the profession and until relatively recently was just as important. These questions are called examination in chief. And they're questions you ask your own witness. Uh, They must be open questions. You're not allowed to lead. They're open questions. They're the who, the why, the, 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 the how, the where questions. Not questions which contain the answer which you're actually looking for or the options. Well, the questions put to Jesus in our reading are cross-examination type questions. They're questions with an agenda. They're questions which are designed to advance that case against Jesus. You see, the Sadducees want Jesus either to look ridiculous by believing the resurrection, or they want him to say that he doesn't believe in it, and so he upsets the majority opinion. These people have rejected Jesus, and they want to get him into trouble. And next week, we'll see, or two weeks' time, we'll see someone asking a much more open question, someone who perhaps, we'll see what John makes of it, but someone who looks perhaps like he's genuinely interested in an answer. Well, let's pause for a moment and think about how this applies to us. The question for us is, do we come to Jesus with an open heart, or do we come to him with an agenda? We now live in a post-Christian society. All the time we're being exposed to non-Christian ways of thinking. And that shapes what we think about authority, about our countries, about, about the role of our country's laws, about right and wrong and who decides, about what it means to be human, about sex and sexual relationships. What do we do when what we think clashes with what Jesus says? Do we approach him with our own agenda or with a humble heart? 
which is open to hearing what he has to say. How do how we come to Jesus, in what, indeed whether we come to him at all, how we come to Jesus with these things shows what place he has in our lives. Will we reject him when he gets in our way? Or will we build our lives on him, the cornerstone, that most important stone? Well, that brings me to my second heading, which is answers which demonstrate the authority and wisdom of Jesus. We've just gone a couple of slides, Manish. Never mind. Never mind about the slides. Answers which demonstrate the authority and wisdom of Jesus. So now, after the Pharisees and Herodians and then the Sadducees have asked their questions, it looks as though Jesus will lose whatever he answers. Well, let's go back to the first question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Refuse to pay taxes to Caesar and you're in trouble with the Romans. Pay them and you're in trouble with the Jewish patriots. Those are the options. And what does Jesus do? Well, he asks for denarius. This was the coin that was used to pay that uh, Roman tax. And on it was a portrait of the emperor Tiberius and also an inscription. And in verse 16, Jesus asks, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? And the answer is Caesar's. And then Jesus says, and this is verse 17, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's brilliant, isn't it? Jesus' wisdom is is brilliant. He doesn't set loyalty to God against loyalty to Caesar. He doesn't set them against one another. He accepts that Caesar has legitimate claims. Indeed, he makes it clear that we should expect the norm to be that loyalty to earthly authorities is compatible with loyalty to God. And the very last line of verse 17 says, and they were amazed at him. They are amazed because Jesus speaks with such authority. And that shouldn't surprise us because the parable which comes just before today's reading makes it clear that Jesus is God's son and he speaks with God's authority. And let's turn to the second question. Remember, Jesus has been reminded of the law that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. The Sadducees have put together this scenario. There are seven brothers who die, and each marries the woman. She dies, and their question is, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? There are two issues which the question raises. Is there such a thing as resurrection, first of all? People coming back to life after they've died. And secondly, if so, who is the woman married to in heaven? Well, Jesus answers the question about resurrection by going back to the Bible He goes back to the book of Exodus. So let's have a look at um, verses 26 and 27. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The reasoning is this. God describes himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And therefore, although they'd already died, they must be alive. God would not have described himself as the God of the dead because, as Jesus said, he is the God of the living and not the dead. And Jesus answers the second question about marriage after the resurrection by saying, and we see that in verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. In other words, The afterlife is not 
just like this one. In the afterlife, we will have a new quality of life, which is unlike that of being human beings on earth, but more like that of being angels in heaven. Now, for some of us, that might be a great relief, the idea of seven husbands. What can I say? But more seriously, for others of us, that idea is difficult because we love our spouse. And it's important to say that we will still know each other and it will be nice to see each other in heaven. But this passage has challenged me over the years because it makes clear that marriage is neither eternal or ultimate, whereas our relationship with Jesus is eternal and ultimate. When we are in heaven, we will be with him, utterly fulfilled and utterly satisfied. See, Jesus' answer is wise, but it's also authoritative. He starts by saying, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? I mean, that is an authoritative statement, if ever there was one. And then he gives his reasons and concludes, you are badly mistaken. Now, the way Jesus answers both these questions demonstrates his authority as God's son and his wisdom, his divine wisdom. So what is this saying to us now? Well, do we see Jesus as the supreme authority? He demonstrated his authority in answering these questions. He demonstrated his wisdom. He demonstrated his authority in dying for the sins of people like you and me and then defeating death and coming back to life. And we're going to be remembering that in, as we take communion together later in the service. He is that cornerstone. He is the one on whom we need to build our lives. Will we give him that preeminent place in our lives? Well, that brings me to my final heading, which is Jesus' challenges leave us a choice. Each of Jesus' answers leaves us with a challenge and a choice. And at the heart of the challenges and choices he gives us is that question, what place will we give him in our lives? And Jesus answers the first question about paying taxes to Caesar by saying, famously, those words, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And there are two challenges here. The first is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And that's an important thing for us to do. Our governments might be increasingly secular and we might not like what they do, but we should expect to be loyal. We should expect to keep the law to pay our taxes and live as godly citizens. Now, there may be times when civil disobedience is right, but they are likely to be the exception rather than the rule. The main point of this section of Mark's gospel comes in the second challenge. Give to God what is God's. And what is it that we're to give to him? What is it due, what is due to God, to God from us? Well, it's Worship. It is worship. Worship is something which involves every part of our lives and is something which has a special expression when we meet together like this as God's people. It involves grateful submission to God. It involves holding God with appropriate reverence and awe. And it involves serving God with our lives, with all of our lives. And this is where we get right to the heart of the matter See, Jesus is challenging his questioners about their relationship with God. 
Give to God what is God's. He's challenging them about their relationship with God. But their questions show that they have rejected him. But in the passage just before ours, Jesus has made it clear that rejecting him, rejecting Jesus, goes hand in hand with rejecting God himself. You cannot worship God and reject Jesus. So Jesus' challenge, will you give to God what is God's? Well, it's a question about what place we're prepared also to give Jesus in our lives. Is he our cornerstone? Is he the one we build our lives upon? Well, the second set of challenges Jesus gives are in response to the second question which the Sadducees put to him about marriage and resurrection. And Jesus comes out with them straight away here. He hits them straight away. He says, um, he says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He comes out with that before he comes out with his, his more detailed answer. Now, the Sadducees prided themselves on their knowledge of what we would call the Old Testament. They prided themselves on their knowledge of, of the scriptures. If anyone knew their Bibles back then, well, it was them. So what's Jesus getting at? Well, their reluctance to accept the Bible as the word of God, and therefore their rejection of God himself. You can be an expert on what the Bible says, but not let it touch your heart or your desires. You can know what it says, but not live by it. You can have a good knowledge of the text, but try and make it say something else. Their attitude to the Bible revealed their attitude to God. And Jesus also challenged them about not knowing the power of God. God is powerful enough to raise dead people back to life. And their superlative knowledge of the scriptures should have revealed that to them. But knowing the power of God in the scriptures should have led them to know the power of God in their lives. His power to provide. His power to forgive and to save. But they didn't know that. Knowing the Bible and knowing the power of God means knowing God in a real and a personal way. And the Sadducees' questions show they rejected Jesus, and now Jesus confronts them with the fact that they don't know God. You cannot know God and reject Jesus. And so Jesus wants us, as we read this part of Mark's Gospel, to see the choice. Will we give him a rightful place, his rightful place, in our lives, or will we reject him and in so doing, reject God. So we return to the question we started with. What place does Jesus have in your life? We thought of that list of five things right at the beginning. You may remember some of them. But there could be many more things on that list. Um, but the point of the list was to help us think about what place Jesus has in our life. Is he the cornerstone? Is he the one who holds the most important place and upon which we build our lives? If you're here today and you're thinking about Christianity, who Jesus is and why he might be important, well, please do keep exploring that. Come back on Sundays to our services and consider our Christianity Explored course, which looks at who Jesus is. It's, um, we've only just started, and there's information about it at the back But for those of us who are here today and are trusting in Jesus, the challenge for us is to keep growing in our love for him and our faith in him and 
asking him to help us make him that cornerstone in our lives. And what a better way, what better service to be doing that in than the service in which we're going to be remembering what Jesus has done for us in his death on the cross for our sins as we share the Lord's Supper. Let's have a moment to pause just to think about um, what place Jesus has in our own lives, and then I'm going to pray. Oh, loving Lord Jesus, we praise you for all that you are. We praise you that you are that great authoritative teacher. We praise you that you are the one who is wise. And we praise you that you are the one who died for us, died for our sins on the cross. Uh, Lord, we give you great thanks that you rose again and are now sitting at the right hand of God. Please help us. Please help each one of us to give you your rightful place in our lives. Lord, may we give you that first place. And may we love you with all that we are and all that we have. For your name's sake, amen.